Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the Director of Player Development at Inter-Miami, Darren Powell. Darren, big warm welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks Connor for having me and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So appreciate you letting me come on the show. Darren, as we were speaking off air before coming on, I mean, I'm in the midst of welcoming you back from a recent trip where you got into the Elon University Hall of Fame. Congrats. Yes, thank you. It was uh yeah, it was a good weekend. I was able to, you know, spend some time with my family and uh, you know, reminisce a little bit about those fun times that we had at Elon. We had some many, many good years there. Um, many good players that that came through and we grew a programme that um when when I first was able to get the job as head coach there in two thousand and five, you know, we grew a programme where there was hardly much support, there wasn't much tradition. Um, you know, the old coach had, um, you know, started to transition from division three to division two to division one. So it was all brand new division one. Um, and it was, it was, um, a great opportunity where, you know, there wasn't many fans at the games, it was about 35 people. And then you fast forward to the last game in the NCAA tournament against Clemson, where we managed to win on PKs and there's almost 4,000 people. Um, around the the facility that now have floodlights, have permanent goals, have stands. So it was a super exciting time, and every person that was uh, a player and part of that program um, certainly helped and contributed. Whether that was players and staff as well. Obviously, it just goes to show kind of the trajectory of U.S. soccer or football, as we'll stick to on this podcast, which has been only, I suppose, one proportion of your career. But um, bring us back or take us back, in fact, to where it all began. Darren, and as you know, like the opening question we have for each guest that comes on the show, would you please take us through your earliest football memory? Yeah, that was uh, yeah a long time ago now. So, um, you know, exactly those first memories, I always remember going to watch my uh, father play and then me and my brother being able to play on the sidelines against each other from from an early age, just kicking kicking a football and, uh, and playing against each other. Um, but my first real memory, I think the passion for the, the game really began um, in, what was that, 1979. Uh, um, Forest were playing Cologne in the uh, what is now the Champions League semi-final at the city ground. And my dad picked me up from school, made us run all the way to the, to the ground so we could get to the fr- front of the queue or front of the line uh, to, so we could be one of the first in the stadium. So I remember getting there about 4.30, um, as the gates opened and, and, and ran in um, for the 7.30 kickoff and, and stood behind the goal. And lo and behold, Forrest were 2-0 down after about 10 minutes and I was, it was crushed and uh, devastated by having to wait so long to see them lose him. Um, but managed to come back 3-2, then it was 3-3. But the, the back and forth game on a pitch that uh, when I look at the highlights, I don't remember it being so bad in terms of just the mud bath. Um, but... You know, they were the first memories and it was a, obviously a semi-final of the Champions League. And in those early years, Forrest then went on and managed to win back-to-back Champions League, which was, which will probably never happen again. But uh, 70-year-old me thought it would happen every year. So uh, continue to, to follow Forrest even to this day and, you know, glad that they're finally back in the Premier League. But that's how the, you know, obviously, um, you know, kind of cherish those moments with my dad and, and being able to go to those games. Uh, you know, that's where he fell in love with it, especially a, a, such a great Champions League semi-final game. I mean, growing up in that system where football is embedded as part of the culture, 
uh, how difficult was it for you at the time in the 90s to take the leap of faith and go on to the big great unknown that was US soccer football at the time? Yeah, I mean, fast forward, I was very fortunate. I uh, was a schoolboy at Nottingham Forest. And then I got, um, you know, those dreams were crushed. Um, basically, my 16th birthday when I wasn't going to be offered an apprenticeship. But fortunately, um, tried with different clubs and ended up at Notts County across the river at uh, 16. And there I actually met, um, you know, a gentleman by the name of Pat Barrett, who was one of our coaches. He actually emigrated to the States. And in my last year at Knox County, he said, uh, you know, love for you to come out and join us, uh, the college system and explain what the college system was, the NCAA. I had the qualifications from, from my GCSEs and, and BTEC that I would continue doing on day release at Knox County and got, was afforded that opportunity to come over. And the head coach, Michael Parker, came over to watch me play in England and sat with myself and my family and explained what, what, it all entailed and you know the dream was to still be a pro and you were at that crossroads where i was offered a very small um pro pathway in england of a couple of months uh, or go and get a college education and play full-time soccer in the united states and with the world cup coming there was a lot of attention on the united states uh, you know for soccer and i just felt like it was a great opportunity and obviously no regrets whatsoever of doing that but that was one of those sliding door moments if you you know get on that plane and and uh, head to the opposite side of the world and at that time there wasn't many english players coming over um there was no internet there was no email it was all waiting for letters in the post and so on and so forth so it was a big move um but one that you know i just saw potential in everything from the education side to the to the playing side and always kind of intended to go back at the end of the college education and go back and play. But um, lo and behold, you end up staying and uh, playing over here and you know, meeting my wife and having children and been in America and, and have loved every moment of the journey ever since. And as we can decipher, I suppose, the coaching bug took over. And it's interesting too, because unbeknownst to myself, I mean, it, like, it featured... Uh, a previous guest on this podcast too, Merrick Nichols. Yeah, you know, got into the coaching and um, was in the Greensboro, UNC Greensboro, Greensboro College, Elon University area. And, you know, as a, as a part-time um, coaching role, I would work with the club that uh, Mark Nichols was, were, was working with, which was the NC Fusion. And, um, you know, the current Colorado Rapids interim head coach, Chris Little, was also there. So we had a lot of the top talents within the area of Greensboro, the triad areas as referred to, Greensboro High Point, Winston-Salem. And we had them, you know, training in the evenings. And, um, you know, I, I think the 14s, Chris the 16s and Mark the 18s. So we had a, a good integration pathway without really, um, you know, really, really knowing that at the time um, in terms of how powerful, you, you know, it can be to, to making sure each team is linked from, from age group to age group. So we we, we enjoyed that time together and, and Mark did a tremendous job on this show last week. And, uh, you know, it, it's always good that we all stay in good contact with each other now. And it's great to see everyone doing so well. And, I mean, during that period, of course, Darren, I mean, when you're learning and honing your craft, 
what did you learn about yourself, let's say, identity and values-wise, which informs even the way that you operate today on the field? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, you know, one thing that I've always valued as a coach is, is hard work. But I always remember um, sitting down with uh, Chris and Mark and we started putting curriculums together. And one thing we all valued at that point um, was, the, was the transitional moments in the game. So as you, as you project out for young players, um, you know, it's very important that you can do both sides of the ball. And I think from, from that point forward, we really emphasize that. And, and some of the players today will tell you second action, second action, um, you know, within our training session. So what does that really mean? It means like if you, you, even when you're doing an attacking phase of play, whether the defending team wins, um, you know, they have to attack immediately. And if the attacking team loses a ball, they have to defend immediately. So it's just setting up your exercises, whether they're 2v1s or 3v2s or, or, or 8v7s or 8v8, whatever it is and what your emphasis is, but always making sure there's a second action. And, um, you know, you, you, when you defend, you get rewarded if you win the ball back. And when you're attacking and lose the ball, you, you better be quickly to, to try and recover it. And I think that's probably that work ethic and that desire to do so and teach players to do that, I think, was something I've learned and carried through for, for many years. Mm, because it's interesting when we speak of it, like 10, 15 years ago, obviously, it's a completely different uh, ecology compared to what it is now with the improvement, not only with respect to infrastructure, resources, coaching, so on and so forth. It's like when I'm hearing you speak about that, it's like a completely different motivational climate for the player and obviously you going over there and with your own footballing expertise and whatnot it's like for me it's a, it's an interesting case i mean like back then even how difficult was it to achieve buy-in necessarily with those players in the system no i think i think um i will say it was hard to get the buy-in i think you know players when you when you influence them at young ages and then continue to do it um, and put, it's part of your daily standards and, uh, and what you expect. Um, you demand it out of the players, and I think you know they end up understanding the value of that and, and just seeing you know some of those young players progress to different various different levels, whether that be collegiately and or you know professionally. Those players, even to this day, there's some of the you know the players that we had within even Elon and, and those young players. Um, I think they see the value in that and understand that and it helps them separate themselves from from fellow competitors and uh, you know fellow players that can play in the same position at the same level so to speak yeah because even taking it through to the present end to probably ask a better question is i mean of course your role is quite broad at inter miami and obviously you're a director of player development there and of course a key facet of that workload of course is your work with individuals, the IPP work. So it's like, I mean, what's in for, like, what informs your work there with the player with respect to the IPP? In fact, like, how critical is it understanding the person before the player at the behest of any plan? Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, getting to know uh, the person first, I think, is massively important. I think that helps because it gives you some connect points and you can figure out some motivation points for the for the player um but the the biggest thing you know in the role that i take take a lot of pride in uh, into miami is it's those steps so what's it take to get to the next step because uh, you know there's always a next step 
um, you know, maybe not for, for Mr. Messi, um, but there's always a next step for players. And I think it's so important to prepare them for that. So, for example, U17 wants to get to the second team. Well, you know, what does those workloads look like? What does that ability look like? What's that decision-making look like at the next level? Why are they at the U17s? So you're coaching those top prospects. So when they make that next step, when they get that opportunity, they're more prepared for it. And then it's the same once you make the second team. How can I get you, you know, how can you now transition into the first team? So what does that look like? You know, you, you, you know you're performing well, but how are you going to perform in front of a full stadium with all the eyes looking at you when you make a bad pass? How are you going to act? How are you going to react? And I think that's the, the big thing with all those players is making sure that they're prepared for that next step on the journey. And then when they get the opportunity, because they're more prepared, they're going to, going to do better and, and excel quicker in that environment. So what does that look like? You know, again, that's those daily contact points with, with, with the player and the person. But then obviously the structure of training and making sure that they they understand their position, they understand the technical requirements, the tactical requirements, um, the physical requirements of what it is at the next level. So that's how you kind of frame the um, IDPs and the individual training programs. Interesting for me too, because inherently within that there and too, you allude to having a strong understanding as to when to accelerate player pathways for unique individuals. Um, what are some possible touch points or key indicators that coaches should be receptive to in that regard? Yeah, I think I think once a player starts to excel um, at the level they're in, and when I say excel, that's not one game, that's not, and that's what you have to explain to young players. It's putting a, a body of work together. So let's just say for, for for an example, ten games of really good work, dominant performances, and starting to excel at their current level. Then you need to stretch that player. You need to push that player. Um, so you know, a, 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 a dominant U seventeen player, for example, that that, that is. You know, play 10 games now you, you start sprinkling into the next level it doesn't have to be 100 percent into the, the the second team for example it could be just two or three trainings a week to start out with and then as he starts to put a body of work together there and then those opportunities come when you obviously into the game and then that same transition process happens again once you can put a body of work together say you know for this example 10 games where they're consistent in performance consistent with the right to consistent with the physical loads um, then now you can start again to, to stretching that, that that boundary of that player um, to prepare him for that next level. It's interesting because it all kind of dovetails nicely into the next point, which is I was listening to you in prep for this on David and Keith's podcast, Goldust, and I'll link that in show notes below. It's a fantastic listen. And they asked you at the end, I mean, what your biggest curiosity was at the present time, and it was how players in any domain or any sport get to the top. So, I mean, since you mentioned those words in the Goldust podcast, what have you learned about that journey? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the boys with Inter Miami um, this year have had, had wonderful opportunities. So you can see them, um, you know, excelling even at the first team level. Ben Hakamashi has just been uh, named to the full national team and you know, at U16 was was playing with Western's Academy, then our academy at U17. Um, during that U17 year, he's then broke into the second team, um, and now he's you know fully fledged in the first team, playing um, really well. 
and same with David Ruiz, Noah Allen, Edison Lasconi, I'm afraid there's, there's been several this year that have broken into the first team level. And I think it just goes to, to see what they have. And, and, and they all have a super strength um, within their own own game. So something that stands out. So for example, um, you know, like the desire of Ben Har and the ability to get from one side of the pitch to the other side of the pitch is fantastic. Um, you know, David's pressure in the field onto onto opposing players is very, very good. And so it, it, it they're their super strength. So all these players have a super strength and it's making sure that, you know, the other aspects of the game, super talented, which they are, and then making sure that the character of that player and that, that determination doesn't cease. They're always trying to make themselves better. They're always trying to be the best version of themselves. Um, and any player I've worked with over the years, you know, that, you know, I can use Danny Lovitz as an example from Elon University that's now at Nashville um, and, and also represented the USA. But his determination every day, the competitiveness, competitiveness of all these players is, is a lot higher um, than the average player. And you see that, um, couple that with a super strength and then these players seem to progress through. So do I have the answer? No, I probably never will have that answer um correct but these are all observations that, that you take a good note of when you're looking and working with players and then you know as a developer then it's your job to share that with with the next generation that's coming through yeah it's interesting there when you speak of the next generation too because obviously working at elon working at the college system san antonio which we haven't even discussed to the present day at miami Obviously, there's a few different iterations there without uh, without paying notice to your age, Darren. There's a few few different generations of player coming through the system. So obviously, there's a lot of hype at the moment about Generation Z and the type of player that they are. I mean, how, have your, how has your own understanding of development and indeed the tools that you use as a developer have had to change, have had to adapt? Yeah, I, I always use, I don't know if this is a, a good good um, analogy or not but I always use it's like movie ratings you know, when you're working with a 12 year old it's a Disney um, when you're working with first team players it's, it's a little more uh, adult um, so you know it's that mo that movie rating so it, it's just scaling football is always the same football um, it, it, you know the game is the same for, for a 12 year old to a uh, um, an adult but Obviously, the demands of the game are slightly different uh, on several different categories in, in, in terms of, the, you know, again, the technical, tactical and, uh, and physical and um, obviously the, the mental component as well. They're all different. But for me, I think each generation that comes through, it's just, you know, setting it up, connecting um, and having an understanding of young players. For example, we had a great conversation with our U14 coach the other day. Um, in terms of how to present video, um, and you know, one of the one of the ideas with with the fourteens is instead of just sharing video with them, you know, maybe opportunities where you put them into small groups. And you know, we hear a lot now that there's there's not as many leaders in the game, there's not as many you know players players willing to to step in front of a group. Okay, so how can we nurture that where there's a confidence? So maybe we're watching video, you're working in small groups and the players are presenting back to the team and now you're also nurturing leaders you know you know they're looking at observations and they're seeing it using themselves which you know this generation is very good with with instant 
um, you know, going back and watching the games and, and seeing themselves, they tend to watch them, you know, a lot of themselves as well. So how does that then impact the team and all different ways of, of trying to be creative and innovative. Um, and I think that is probably the biggest thing is always trying to find ways to be able to connect and help players. And, and, and that's the goal. You want to, to help the players get better um and, and help them realize their own ambition so you know as a coach as and, and as adults we we try and be innovative and talk these things and then try them um and i think what you find if you're brave and and, and try a few things you're gonna you're gonna get some uh good feedback and good responses from the players i think players ultimately want to know that you care and you want to try and make them better yeah i mean that seems to be the case truly in the environment in which you are at the moment because I mean, with all due respect to, there's been a lot of right, rightly so praise for the likes of Lionel Messi, Jordi Alba, Sergio Busquets, getting all the plaudits down there. However, there was something that drew my attention quite a while ago. Uh, it was a game you guys played against DC United, which I'd imagine was the game of immense pride for the club, having six homegrowns out there in the field. And it's something unique. Obviously, Benjamin Kramaski will get a lot of the plaudits too, right? Recently capped by the US men's national team. But for me, that's a key. It's a bright vision of the future to see that squad that day between your DPs, the likes of Messi, the likes of your DPs, and then having so many homegrown talents there. It's a pretty yeah, great. I mean, yeah, no, it's an amazing feeling. I was very fortunate the DC United game. Um, 2 2. Uh, ben Hurst scored his first goal. I think Noah Allen scored his first goal. There were six of them there. So, um, having, you know, the, the, the honour of uh, debuting those guys at uh, the MLS 2 level, you know, within the last two years, um, it, 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 it was immense to see that. And, and uh, you know, we perhaps could have won that game 3 2 if uh, the linesman didn't raise his flag for Davies Ruiz to get a third one, which would have been nice to get two extra points. But, um, no, it was an amazing experience, amazing experience. And then to see these boys continue now um, under, you know, Tata and the new coaching staff. And when Messi scored the free kick um, in his first game and just seeing, like, Noah Allen just with the smile, his eyes lit up, chasing him, it, it, you do feel feel a lot of pride when you see these young men go through. And and for me as a coach, and I'm sure any other coach and, you know, any young coach, that's where, you know, it gives you those goosebumps. It gives you those, that, that really powerful feeling that, you know, there's not one person that has contributed to these players getting there, but it's a community and you're part of that community, part of that journey. And, um, you know, it was quite surreal when you see Noah Allen chasing Messi after uh, Messi's first goal that, you know, two years ago, um, you know, you, you're working with him and, and, and helping him in, in games, um, you know, in games in, in the USL one. I think it's absolutely fantastic what you mentioned there. Speaking of community, as in fact, that's when I find the best coaching is done too. And it's beyond the surface level, it's beyond the transaction level, it's beyond the white lines that coach-athlete relationship. And I think it's so intact to, and it's tantamount to all the good work that's going on too. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, that's that's why, you know, not everybody can can experience what the, the, the players that made it to the first team. But 
there's been a lot of young players on on the same journey and uh, they've helped those young players get there and um you know i think it just keeps that community and, and if they're in the college you know with their college teams and you know they've been playing alongside these players you know you take immense immense pleasure from that um and you know i think that's you know that's what the system does it, it it's not going to get everybody through it's a small percentage of um, can play at the, the real high levels and, and first team football but i think you know all those players have to see the value in, in being a part of that journey with somebody that has come through the, the, the system as well yeah the positive role model i think is an absolute key facet too but i mean earlier on in the show you spoke of when you're speaking to players speaking about next steps you know milestones in their own developmental journey i mean what about you as a developer and Inter Miami is a club too, because this season, obviously, the club has raised the bar and set the standards so high in terms of what's expected and going through the ranks. How do you guys envisage and plan to keep that bar high and, in fact, build and, again, not only sustain, but build on top of it? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's just making sure we maintain a really um, good, positive, um, integration from the academy into the second team and players coming through and you know the coaching staff at Inter Miami the, the academy director now Victor Pastori um, you know the second team head coach Fede Higuain and then all the the academy staff below there's a really good again I say the word community again but it's good camaraderie amongst the group um, and you know it's it's really important we just keep those lines um, of players and, and, and pushing the players and ultimately knowing now we've got stories that a player's reaching the MLS so now it's a question of who's next and you know with the people in place and uh, the, the, the guidance of, or, or even from Chris Henderson the sporting director all the way through the club um, I think is what is a strength into Miami and anywhere I've been before whether that be San Antonio or Orlando um, I think that is the strength it, it, it is the staff and the people being able to communicate being on the same page and then being able to push the players on a daily basis absolutely fantastic darren i mean i've taken great notes here to my right hand side of what you guys are doing at inch miami to bridge that developmental gap and i'd have to thank you so much for coming on today because it's been a pleasure and a delight to listen but for those listening to that are that slightly bit inspired by your own career path to date and the work that you're in fact doing now at Inter Miami, what would be the key bit of advice you'd have for them if they wish to thread a similar path? I think I think the most important thing for me, uh, for a young coach, is to make sure the session is for the players. It's not about the coach; it's about the players. So again, the hard work, the you know. Being, you know, being on time, the basics that, that every coach should do. But I think it's just making sure that the session is for the players. So, you know, you put your aspects in there, you have your objectives, you have how you want to, to, to set up the session. But once once you're on the grass and once you, the balls start rolling, you know, just make those interventions at a timely fashion. Let the game do it because young players want to play. They want to compete and you know you know you see a lot of coaches sometimes especially starting out want to express all their knowledge no just little bits bite size each time for each session 
build upon it. Um, but remember, the session is, is about the players and the players want to play. So get them playing, get them on the ball as much as possible. And you'll see the smiles on their faces and um, you know, you'll be able to achieve the goals and the objectives that you want from your session. And sometimes it takes, you know, maybe some creative ideas and longer to plan. But do your planning and make the session about the players. Fantastic. Darren, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. And it's been an absolute pleasure as well.